This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our second and final episode discussing Christy's breakout novel. Uh, the one critics claim was her very best, and that's The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Last week, we talked about the book in terms of it being a formal detective novel. I mean, uh, a murder of manners, as I read one critic described the genre. We discussed the conventions of the style. We also introduced her most famous and beloved character, Hercule Poirot. And uh, <laughs> and you left us, Christy, with a teaser saying you wanted to get back to the story of Agatha Christie, as in Agatha Christie and Poirot's relationship, before we finish by spoiling for everyone who hasn't read it yet uh, who the killer is for Roger Ackroyd. So, uh, Christy, and it is slightly confusing calling you Christy and then her being Dame Christy. You're Christy with a Y. She's Christy with a I know. A, I wish I, I could e. be Dame, too. <laughs> <laughs> but even still, uh, here's a question to start with. Did Agatha Christie really hate Poirot? He made uh, Christy quite a bit of money over the years. Uh, how could she hate a character that had been so good to her? Well, it seems that... She didn't really like him that much. And the first reason I feel confident in making that claim is that she wrote a title, well, she wrote an essay titled, Why I Got Fed Up with Perot. Uh, I think that's <laughs> blunt. That that conveys at least a, a minimum slight frustration. Yes, the title's a little catchy. I read the essay, and the first reason really makes sense. It's simple when you think about it. She was just saddled with him. She didn't know when she made it up that she was going to be closer to him than most husbands. Uh, and she made him deliberately annoying to be around. Some of her final words in that essay were advice to future writers. And she says it this way. I would give one piece of advice to young detective writers. Be careful what central character you create. You may have him with you a very long time. <laughs> So basically, his uh, eccentricities, uh, the ones that people find hilariously annoying, just got on her last nerve over time. And uh, she said once that he was a detestable, bombastic, tiresome, 
egocentric little creep. <laughs> I wouldn't want you to say that about me. <laughs> no. You know, of course, that's a nasty way of saying some of the same things she said about him in her books, but often in her books, she uses gentler terms. <laughs> yes. You know, he is annoying. That's part of the shtick. And he does brag and constantly reminds his suspects that he always uncovers their lies. Even in this book, up to the very end, he gloats and brags on himself from the beginning to end. <laughs> I know, it's so true. And since she wrote him in 33 novels, two plays, and over 55 stories, I can only imagine he had to be with her, at least in the back of her mind, always. I mean, he's not like a husband, I guess. Maybe he's more like a child, if we want to find the right metaphor. But I do think even beyond that, it got beyond him just being annoying as a character. Perot, in very obvious ways, if you think about it, limited her as a writer. And that same essay, she also had this to say, my own Hercule Perot is often somewhat of an embarrassment to me, not in himself, but in the calling of his life. Would anyone go and consult him? One feels not. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so it seems as if it bothered her that he wasn't as realistic as she would have written him maybe later in life. I think it's something along those lines. I mean, he was a great shtick, but there was kind of a shticky element to him in many ways, and he didn't allow her to develop her writing or even her thematic ideas. He just was a little bit silly. Her great-grandson, James Pritchard, spoke to this uh, in an interview with the BBC. He said that, in her words again, she wanted to, and this is what she said, she wanted to exercise herself of him. But she couldn't because, again, her words, he was her bread and butter. (laughs) So he was of immense commercial importance to her, if not really of great creative importance in some ways. According to Pritchard, she had so many other ideas for books that just weren't appropriate for a character like Hercule Perrault. But her agents and her publishers would always remind her, well, he is her most popular character. And they're the conundrum. I wish I had a problem like that. Yes. You'd like to be like that musical artist that has a mega hit. They get get sick of singing it. Yeah. Well, I I think a lot of us would like to have that problem. Um, Although I can kind of see where she's coming from. Uh, We hear actors from time to time express similar ideas. Uh, You know, famously, I remember George Reeves, who was the original Superman. He complained all the way until his strange and mysterious suicide that he just always hated being Superman. You know, or even more recently, one example that comes to mind might be Daniel Ratcliffe, who noticeably has worked incredibly hard to demonstrate that he is not just Harry Potter, but a versatile actor. That would be a hard That's hard to, to beat, overcome, right. yeah. <laughs> you know, what I found interesting about Christie's relationship with Poirot is that she was loyal or maybe even jealous of him a little bit. Yeah, explain that. Well, she took great pains not to let anyone else have him. Uh, During World War II, uh, Agatha Christie, like many patriotic British celebrities, chose to stay in London during the Blitz. And uh, in other words, not taking advantage of the privilege of wealth and fame to ride out the war in the United States or some other safe destination. Uh, If you remember, the Blitz is uh, what we call the eight months during 1940 to 41 when the Nazis put the city of London under siege by aircraft attacks, as well as other large and uh, important British cities, and they were constantly bombed. But choosing to stick it out during the bombings is not the same as being concerned that the decision 
might cost you your life. And, you know, fearing she might not uh, survive the, um, the attacks, she wrote two stories that killed off each of her most famous detectives, Poirot and Miss Marple. And she included a provision in her will that the stories would be published if she were to die in the war. Uh, but fortunately for us, she didn't die in the war, and Poirot hung around to annoy his creative for <laughs> another 30 years. And it wasn't until 1975, when her own health began to fail, that she finally did publish Curtain, and that was that novel that she had written during World War II, which killed Poirot off. Uh, after Curtain came out, it wasn't but just a few months later, in 1976, that she died. So she kept him around her entire adult life. I would tell you how Perot dies, but you never want to give away too much about a Christie novel. The surprise is the fun part, and it is a really great conclusion to a great series. Uh, and this is maybe more to Perot's credit than maybe Christie's, but the public reaction uh, to what Christie did in her final novel was so tremendous that Hercule Perot, the fictional character, got a front page obituary in the New York Times <laughs> on August 6, 1975. A headline ran announcing, Perot is dead. Famed Belgian detective Hercule Perot, the detective, dies. And there were people in New York reading the Times going, who was no! this guy? Well, some of them were like, why? He must be famous. Uh, you know, wow, that's that's great stuff. But back to our story. Uh, last week, we talked about all the ways the murder of Roger Ackroyd fits the bill for a traditional formal detective novel. I mean, the setting and the characters and the weapon, the investigative style, you know, all of it culminating in a happily ever after ending where the world is put back in an orderly fashion and justice is served. And uh, you even brought up the Mahjong game and even suggested that Christie may even be constructing kind of a subtle argument where life is better lived when and where people interact and engage each other deliberately, you know, where people organize and live according to uh, commonly agreed upon rules of engagement or something like that. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. And now this week we're going to see that all that talk about rules is just a cruel joke to seduce us into a game where she is not going to follow the rules of the game. (laughs) And here's a spoiler. So if you haven't read the book, Unplug now, fair warning, drum roll for the real. <laughs> the narrator is the murderer. Oh, no. That's unfair, even according to Christie's own set of rules. And yet, is it? And I assume by rules, you're referring to the rules of the detection club, that famous organization created in 1930 by mystery writers, Agatha Christie among them. But other names that uh, I didn't even really know were mystery writers, including A.A. Milne, who we think of because he created Winnie the Pooh. Hmm. The Detection Club, by the way, still exists. You have to be formally invited. So I'm still waiting for my invite. Obviously, it's prestigious. But to be a member, you have to swear an oath. And of course, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek because you're talking about writers swearing oaths about bad practices of misty-riding writing. But it does exist. So, Gary, read for us the oath. (laughs) (laughs) 
Do you promise that your detectives shall well and truly detect crimes presented to them using those wits which it may please you to bestow upon them and not placing reliance on nor making use of divine revelation, feminine intuition, mumbo jumbo, (laughs) jiggery pokery, coincidence or act of God? It's an awesome oath. (laughs) It gives you uh, the impression that this is a fun bunch to be associated with all that discussion of mumbo jumbo and jiggery pokery. Uh, But the detection club hosts formal dinners and other social things. And they also collaborate with each other on ideas, encourage each other in their writing, read their stuff. And sometimes they've even co-written books together. Beyond the oath, though, there are also in the detection club something that they called the fair play rules of detective novels. There are 10 of them. One rule, of course, is that the detective himself will not commit the murder. But here's the one that has gotten Agatha Christie in trouble when it comes to Roger Ackroyd. And they say that she broke it. Rule number nine. Let's read rule number nine. All right. And I quote, The stupid friend of the detective, the Watson, must not conceal any thoughts which pass through his mind. His intelligence must be slightly but very slightly below that of the average reader. (laughs) And what we have to recognize and what's so awesome about how Christy wrote uh, her book is that Dr. Shepard, the narrator who is actually our murderer, never really lies to us. He never conceals anything that happens during the investigation at all, really. The facts are the facts. He faithfully relays what's going on. In one sense of the word, he is faithful to us. But of course, after you know who the murderer is and you reread the book knowing that he's the murderer, we can see that he also deliberately misleads us at every point. Here's one example uh, of what I'm talking about. On the night that Ackroyd is murdered, Shepard is the only one with him. He's the last one to see him. Naturally, that should make him the first and perhaps the most important suspect. Everyone knows that if you've seen any TV shows. But in our minds, we dismiss the obvious until we know, then everything suddenly jumps off the page. But let's read that actual murder scene now that we know it in retrospect. Ackroyd, his finger on the sheet to turn it over, paused. Shepard, forgive me, but I must read this alone, he said unsteadily. It was meant for my eyes and my eyes only. He put the letter in the envelope and laid it on the table. Later when I'm alone. No, I cried impulsively. Read it now. Ackroyd stared at me in some surprise. I beg your pardon, I said, reddening. I do not mean read it aloud to me, but read it through whilst I am here. Ackroyd shook his head. No, I'd rather wait. But for some reason, obscure to myself, I continued to urge him. At least read the name of the man, I said. Now, Ackroyd is essentially pig-headed. The more you urge him to do a thing, the more determined he is not to do it. All my arguments were in vain. The letter had been brought in at twenty minutes to nine, It was just on ten minutes to nine when I left him. The letter still unread. I hesitated with my hand on the door handle, looking back and wondering if there was anything I had left undone. I could think of nothing. With a shake of the head, I passed out and closed the door behind me. 
So from the first read, uh, we think Shepard walked out before Ackroyd read the letter. And Shepard intends for us to read it exactly like that. And, of course, everything here is true. Well, there are just a few omissions, literally accounting for just a few moments of narrative. He left out the small detail that he murdered Roger Ackroyd. <laughs> the small detail. <laughs> Ran down to the summer house, took Ralph Payton's shoes out of a bag, slipped them on, walked through the mud, left Prince on the window ledge, climbed in the same window, changed back into his own shoes, and then raced out to the gate. <laughs> <laughs> he did leave a few things out. Well, it turns out a lot can happen in five minutes, uh, but it's also not inaccurate to say, uh, as he did say in summary, he left with nothing left undone, meaning <laughs> he staged the murder exactly as he wanted, nothing undone. And yet, Christy gets everyone to just blow right past that omission, which, when I read the book the second time, jumped out as being so obvious. Which is awesome writing. And, you know, how does she make us dismiss him? And I'll admit the thought crossed my mind that Shepard uh, could be a suspect. And, you know, there were things that were odd, but I ended up quickly dismissing anything that would make us even question him. Well, exactly. For one thing, you know, we have our biases working against us. We've been conditioned by Sherlock Holmes and Watson, and Christie plays with this. We expect the sidekick to be naive and overconfident. Look at the rules of fair play. I mean, slightly lower intelligence than <laughs> us. Watson always is. Also, if you read any other Perot story, you really would be at a disadvantage because even Perot has a sidekick, and he references it in the book, Captain Hastings. What Christie has done is kind of make a parody of that model. She used our experience of reading other detective novels against us. She's kind of mocking us in a way, if you think about it. Which is genius, you know. And in other words, she's toying with our prejudices and our previously held assumptions and encouraging us um, to really entertain our un, our own unconscious biases. And to use a term we would use for this, you know, which we'd call default judgment nowadays, we don't even realize we're doing it. It's unconscious. I think so. We don't even know we're doing it, and yet we do. And she does this while clearly and making the most important clues the most obvious, and we understand them to be. With one exception, the dictaphone is a little concealed. There's only one reference to that, and it's a passing reference. Some people have said that's not fair, but that's probably just sour grapes, to use a Aesop Fable reference. <laughs> the other clues are very prominent. Perot is quick to point out that the armchair is out of place. That ends up being a very important clue. In fact, it's obvious to the reader that Christie wants us to know it's important. We just can't figure out why. Well, that's how I felt about the telephone call. Uh, Perot references it multiple times and literally says if we could make sense of the phone call, we could solve the mystery. And we know the phone call is the most important thing, but that didn't help me solve it. And I never did understand it until Perot explained it. I know. <laughs> and then you get to Shepard's double talk. It's everywhere. Look back at what Shepard said about the last time he spoke with Mrs. Farrar's before her suicide. He said, her manner then had been normal enough considering, well, considering everything, we think he means considering the fact that she's killed her husband, but what he actually means is considering everything, considering that she killed her husband and that she's being blackmailed. <laughs> well, my favorite deception is the one where Dr. Shepard hollers at Aykroyd uh, while knowing he's dead. Uh, he breaks down the door, then states this to us, the reader, and, and let me quote him directly. Aykroyd was sitting as I had left him in the armchair before the fire, 
His head had fallen sideways and clearly visible. Just below the collar of his coat was a shining piece of twisted metalwork. I mean, this is exactly how he left him. (laughs) But we are left to assume he meant, you know, except for the knife in his neck. But he doesn't actually say that. And we think it on our own. And, uh, you know, we construct the rest of the statement uh, with our own unconscious biases. By the way, this is called the availability heuristic (laughs) for your psychology terms. Uh. Of course, the knife wasn't in his neck, and uh, that would mean Dr. Shepard killed him, which, of course, he couldn't have. He's the narrator. So, you know, we unconsciously add something to the narrative that is not there. And he actually said, "I, I left him just like this. But changing directions just a little bit, I do want to talk about a trick that Perot does over and over again, and I didn't catch on to it also until Perot's revelation at the very end. Perot is constantly giving out these little false narratives. We really shouldn't believe everything that Perot says. And had I understood that, I might have had a fighting chance at following Perot's line of reasoning. Well, probably not, but... Perot is the one, not Shepard, of the habit of creating these fabricated stories or false little lies. There's the fake experiment with Flora, the one where he was trying to see if Flora had actually gone into the study or if she had just gone in front of the study to get to the stairs that led to Ackroyd's bedroom. But that's not the only one, and we're told of at least you know a couple of more. Uh, The difference is Perot regularly lets Shepard into his confidence about all of his line. So instead of us, you know, wondering what Perot is doing, we just trust Shepard more. He admitted to Shepard the truth about the ring when that lie was being told. And then again about the fake newspaper story. Christy misleads us to the assumption that Perot implicitly trusts Shepard because he's telling Shepard things. So we assume that if he's telling Shepard everything, uh, he doesn't explain his reasoning, but he tells him what's going on, uh, that this is a clean character, and he wasn't. We find out later, though, that even Perot has fabricated an entire family member that he doesn't (laughs) have. Another point that becomes clear in that all-important chapter 23, that's the chapter about the little reunion, is that even Perot agrees with Shepard's retelling of the investigation. Perot even compliments Shepard for his faithful retelling of the investigation. And, you know, it's kind of an interesting section uh, once you understand Perot knows Shepard is the murderer, and Perot doesn't let on to anything. And Shepard confesses to Perot that he has been writing the account of the murder in book form and he has 20 chapters already written. You know, so Perot asked to read it, uh, you know, references old friend Hastings. And after he finishes reading Shepard's account, ironically, while sitting in Shepard's own workshop, where he built the contraption he was going to use in the murder, uh, Shepard asked Perot what he thinks. Yeah, let's read Perot's carefully chosen comments, knowing what we know now of the relationship between these two characters, and that Perot knows he's talking to the murderer. I went into the workshop. Perot was sitting by the window. The manuscript lay neatly piled on a chair beside him. He laid his hand on it and spoke. Eh, bien, he said, I congratulate you on your modesty. Oh, I said, rather taken aback. And on your reticence, he added. I said, oh, again, not so did Hastings write, continued my friend. On every page, many, many times was the word I. 
what he thought, what he did, but you, you have kept your personality in the background. Only once or twice does it obtrude in scenes of home life, shall we say. I blushed a little before the twinkle of his eye. What do you really think of the stuff, I asked nervously. You want my candid opinion? Yes. Perot laid his jesting manner aside. A very meticulous and accurate account, he said kindly. You have recorded all the facts faithfully and exactly, though you have shown yourself becomingly reticent as to your own share in them. And it has helped you? Yes, I may say that it has helped me considerably. Come, we must go over to my house and set the stage for my little performance. (laughs) Performance indeed. Such irony. Perot is deceiving the deceiver. And when we get to the little reunion, it becomes obvious that Perot has been concealing a lot of things from Shepard, including the fact that he had Ralph Patton in the house and he knew the whole time uh, letting Shepard frame him or at least appear guilty to everyone. Another really ironic line from Dr. Shepard is what he says to us, the readers, the moment Ralph Patton walks out. It's the first sentence of chapter 24. Shepard sees Ralph coming in and he says, it was a very uncomfortable minute for me. (laughs) (laughs) I imagine it was. And yet, even at this point, uh, with that kind of comment in our faces, he still doesn't suspect the doctor of being the murderer, but we definitely should. And, you know, Shepard confesses that he secretly went to Ralph Patton, talked him into abandoning his wife, and then stashed him in a hospital. And when uh, Perot brings out Patton, it's uncomfortable because Shepard was the one that had hidden Patton. Perot wasn't supposed to know where he was at all. And when Patton walks out, what's uncomfortable for Shepard is realizing that Perot has known for a long time where Patton was hidden. And if Perot knew where he was hidden, he knew who was also responsible for hiding him, which is a little bit awkward. (laughs) True. But maybe Christie's biggest deception as far as what she's concealed from us, the readers, and that kept us from suspecting Shepard, is what we really didn't see, and that is a motive Why kill his friend? And he and Aykroyd were clearly friends. What made Dr. Shepard commit the heartless crime? Well, part of the fun of reading a detective novel is uh, understanding how someone committed a crime. And uh, that is more fun in understanding the why of why they did it. That's Uh, true. We know from real life that people kill for like endless reasons and some of them terribly meaningless. And we don't need a lot, by the way, of justification. You know, but in this case, Dr. Shepard doesn't seem the type to commit a random murder. And he didn't have a, a clear personal issue with Aykroyd either. And they don't seem in love with the same woman. So no. <laughs> we, we have to rule out a crime of passion. And, you know, it's hard to imagine Shepard would do it for the money either. Although doctors weren't necessarily rich in those days, they were employed. And Shepard expresses no real habits that would be um, high dollar bad things like gambling or traveling. Uh, But maybe, more importantly, doctors just normally seem committed to saving lives rather than ending them. Hopefully. (laughs) And he's seen patients all the way to the end of the book, so there's no obvious motive, really. Perot answers this for us very subtextually. He has come back from Cranchester, apparently, and he probably knows Shepard is the murderer. And he tells Caroline and Shepard, as well as us, the readers, why Shepard did it. Of course, Caroline thinks he's talking about Ralph Patton, 
But as we read this book the second time, knowing what we know, we have to suspect that maybe he's talking about Shepard himself. Perot was silent for a minute, watching the curling smoke rise from his cigarette. When at last he spoke, it was in a gentle, faraway voice that produced a curious impression. It was totally unlike his usual manner. Let us take a man, a very ordinary man, a man with no idea of murder in his heart. There is in him somewhere a strain of weakness, deep down. It has so far never been called into play. Perhaps it never will be. And if so, he will go to his grave honored and respected by everyone. But let us suppose that something occurs. He is in difficulties, or perhaps not that even. He may stumble by accident on a secret a secret involving life or death to someone, and his first impulse will be to speak out, to do his duty as an honest citizen. And then the strain of weakness tells. Here's a chance of money, a great amount of money. He wants money, he desires it, and it is so easy. He has to do nothing for it, just keep silence. That is the beginning. The desire for money grows. He must have more and more. He is intoxicated by the gold mine which has opened at his feet. He becomes greedy, and in his greed he overreaches himself. One man can press a man as far as one likes, but with a woman one must not press too far. For a woman has at heart a great desire to speak the truth. How many husbands who have deceived their wives go comfortably to their graves, carrying their secret with them? How many wives who have deceived their husbands wreck their lives by throwing the fact in those same husbands' teeth? They have been pressed too far in a reckless moment, which they will afterwards regret. They fling safety to the winds and turn at bay, proclaiming the truth with great momentary satisfaction to themselves. So it was, I think, in this case. The strain was too great, and so there came your proverb, the death of the goose that laid the golden egg. But that is not the end. Exposure faced the man of whom we are speaking, and he is not the same man he was, say, a year ago. His moral fiber is blunted. He is desperate. He is fighting a losing battle, and he is prepared to take any means that come to his hand, for exposure means ruin to him, and so the dagger strikes. (laughs) I'm not sure I... Agree with Christy on her perspective on the gender politics there, but she does speak about weakness several times previously in regard to Shepard. I mean, Caroline calls her brother weak multiple times. And it's not necessarily evil as we define evil, which I find interesting, but of course it is evil. I mean, there's, it's going to result in the taking of a life. You know, from a historical perspective, and this is where I find that knowing something about the author's background changes my understanding of what she is saying. And we know Christie publishes this novel in 1926, and she'd been a nurse during World War One. And, you know, no one in Europe was untouched by the evil of World War One. Everyone was trying to understand it and confront it. You know, but most were unsuccessful. And it's really uh, out of this kind of madness that we're going to get some actually great thinking and writing of a different kind. You know, writers like um, Kafka and Satra and Dostoevsky and Camus, they were all talking about the purpose of life and, and the cause of evil and the ability to keep from committing physical or mental suicide. You know, really a, a finding purpose and meaningless tragedy 
that sort of thing. And over here, we had Hemingway and Fitzgerald and even Steinbeck on this side of the Atlantic that were doing the same thing. And, you know, in fact, uh, in our next book, we're going to get uh, neck deep in Camus' ideas <laughs> yeah, of, the, of the absurd, as expressed in his book, The Stranger. Uh, knowing this was what people were dealing with and writing about makes it safe, really kind of to infer that Christie was not um, oblivious to the thoughts of the age and certainly not above making her own commentary on the essence of evil. No, I'm sure she wasn't. And of course, evil being embedded in the heart of every man, well, that's an ancient idea. It's not original to Christie. It's a biblical idea. But she situates her man, uh, her thoughtless, weak man, um, I shouldn't say thoughtless, her weak man, in a claustrophobic, safe, enclosed environment. This is not a chaotic war zone. There's no outside forces making people do things of impossible moral compromise. She illustrates something very different than that. This is weakness from within, regardless of the environment. It's in a single, seemingly simple, but brilliant country doctor. A man who's a community icon, the bastion of propriety and apparent virtue in his world. Which, of course, makes him invisible to everyone, even to us readers. And I mean, are you suggesting Shepard embodies her ironic social commentary? <laughs> I mean, she's engaging her post-war countrymen while appearing to not engage them. It's, it's very Hercule Poirot-like. <laughs> I know. I kind of see it that way. I can only imagine... Uh, what she saw, if you think about, you know, being seeing patient beds during the war, uh, but if it had been anything close to what Walt Whitman talked about in his writings, she clearly likely saw weakness of every kind in all kinds of people that showed up, some even probably confessing to horrible atrocities, or, or I don't know. But there are easy opportunities in this era for her also to witness people exploiting each other outside of the war zone as well. Uh, you know, exactly. Um, that's the source of PTSD in a lot of people. Which brings us to the solution of our murder. At the end, chapter 20, it finally occurs to Shepard, the pro may not be so easily fooled as he originally thought. And I quote, It occurred to me that there was not much which escaped Hercule Perrault. And so Perot invites all of the suspects over to his house for what he will call a little conference. This conference will include even the notorious Ralph Patton, which he has stowed away, although no one knows about that until he reveals himself. But of course, in typical detective book fashion, they all show up for the meeting. <laughs> right. You have to. That's what you, they do in the movies. Exactly. Uh, before we get there, though, I do want to have one more pick a bit of fun uh, on the funny side with a comment that Caroline makes about men. Oh, dear. <laughs> I know. All right. Go ahead. Well, I know, right? In chapter 22, Ursula is making a confessional to Caroline, admitting that she said some really bad things to Ralph Patton, and she kind of regrets what she said. And Caroline responds with this deep and insightful life lesson to the young girl, and she says, Never worry about what you say to a man. They're so conceited that they will never believe you if it's unflattering. <laughs> <laughs> So, Gary, what do you think about that little comment? Is it true? Uh, you know, all I have to say is that Caroline has been wrong about everything else. <laughs> and I don't know why you would start taking life lessons from her now. I mean, this is the same woman that is trying to fake being a vegetarian in front of a world-class detective. 
I know, it's so funny, though. Which brings us back to chapter 23. This is where Dr. Shepard gives over to Perot his narrative of the events of the murder investigation. And it's also where Perot collects all of these suspects in the single room. Dr. Shepard uh, should have been worried, really, when Caroline tries to maneuver an invitation to the activity and is rebuffed with this comment. I should much like to have had you present, Mademoiselle, but at this juncture, it would not be wise. See, all these people tonight are suspects. Amongst them, I shall find the person who killed Mr. Ackroyd. You know, that right there should have tipped off not only Dr. Shepard, but us, the readers. Well, why does Dr. Shepard score an invite then? Unless he, too, is a suspect. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's a fun chapter to read, really. I mean, part of the fun of the detective story is reconstructing the thought processes that led to the discovery. You know, we get to identify with the detective as well as the murderer. And in this chapter, we do both. And we get to identify creatively with all the little crimes of all the little secret keepers. You know, Ursula, uh, Mrs. Russell, and and Flora. And he discloses everyone's secrets one by one. And so far, everyone is getting a happy ending. Well, everyone leaves, and we are left alone with Dr. Shepard and Perot, and hence we have our final confrontation. Dr. Shepard reveals all the details of the murder, and we as readers are shocked and confused. How did we miss it? Ironically, Shepard's book that he wrote with the idea of monetizing Perot's greatest failure as a detective has turned out to now be something of a confessional. Let's read the final interaction between Perot and Dr. Shepard. You think not? Remember what I said. The truth goes to Inspector Raglan in the morning. But for the sake of your good sister, I am willing to give you the chance of another way out. There might be, for instance, an overdose of a sleeping draft. You comprehend me? But Captain Ralph Patton must be cleared. I should suggest that you finish that very interesting manuscript of yours, but abandoning your former reticence. You seem to be very prolific of suggestions, I remarked. Are you sure you're quite finished? Now that you remind me of the fact, it is true that there is one more thing. It would be most unwise on your part to attempt to silence me as you silenced Mr. Ackroyd. That kind of business does not succeed against Hercule Poirot, you understand? My dear Poirot, I said, smiling a little, Whatever else I may be, I am not a fool. I rose to my feet. Well, well, I said with a slight yawn, I must be off home. Thank you for a most interesting and instructive evening. Perrault also rose and bowed with his accustomed politeness as I passed out of the room. The final chapter, the Apologia, is positioned as if it were Dr. Shepard's suicide note. Except Dr. Shepard just told us he is no fool. And this is where the story gets ambiguous. Are we supposed to believe that this guy committed suicide? Pro tells him to. He tells him to rewrite his book and confess to the murder, which I guess he does since that's what we're reading. But does he kill himself? The Apologia in many ways is him boasting about how far along he actually got. He doesn't express any remorse. And I quote, I suppose I must have meant to murder him all along. He's talking about Ackroyd. He goes on to say, I am rather pleased with myself as a writer. He literally quotes himself, bragging about how he concealed the murder in the pages of the book we just read. 
Now, we see in this very confessional that not only is he a flat-out deceiver, but the object of the deception wasn't necessarily Perot. He wants to deceive the readers with his narrative. And so does he do it one last time? Are we deceived into thinking he's killed himself and taking the Veronal? Or does Dr. Shepard get away? <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, Christie doesn't live within the world of uh, perpetual sequels or telenovelas, or, or she just might have written to be continued. Uh, well, thanks for being with us today, and we hope you'd enjoyed our discussion on one of the world's favorite mystery writers and her standout crime story, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. It certainly has been fun for me. And uh, speaking of fun, please don't overlook our new merchandise. If you're interested in supporting the podcast or just need a fun, happy gift for someone, we got you covered. We've got stickers and mugs and T-shirts and hoodies, all the things. They are there along with our teaching materials on the website at howtolovelitpodcast.com. And as always, feel free to connect with us on all the social media. Thanks again. Peace out. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.